0: Let's begin this hour with a prayer by St. Augustine of Hippo. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Give me yourself, O my God. Give yourself to me. Behold, I love you. And if my love is too weak a thing, grant me to love you more strongly. I cannot measure my love to know how much it falls short of being sufficient. But let my soul hasten to your embrace and never be turned away until it is hidden in the secret shelter of your presence. This only do I know, that it is not good for me when you are not with me, when you are only outside me. I want you in my very self. All the plenty in the world, which is not my God, is utter want. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to this special program, The Best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and Matt Swaim and I are excited to share with you some very awesome interviews of days gone by that we have pulled from the archives to bring to you this morning. Hope you can stick around and enjoy the entire hour ahead. We'll get started right now. It's two minutes past the hour. Catherine Fishlock back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show here in studio with me, professional singer, musician, teacher. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. So today's chant that every Catholic should know is the Ave Maris Stella. And this is, of course, a Marian hymn under her title of Star of the Sea. Do you know where that title comes yes. from?
1: Well, I've read various things that maris, which means sea or Mm -hmm. ocean in Latin, actually sort of morphed from a different possible word, which actually meant bitterness, miriam, actually the name Miriam. So I've read various, you know, various things, but regardless this title of our lady as the star of the sea is such a beautiful image in that mm-hmm. she guides our way as we navigate our way through um the tumultuous ups and downs of life
0: amen amen to that now uh, this is kind of a long one in terms yeah. of it has you said seven yeah
1: this has seven verses so i thought what i'll uh, if this is if this is a, a good idea for you, I will read the translation of just a couple of the verses, and then sing the first and maybe the first two because sure. those are the most probably the most well known.
0: I am at your service. All right.
1: For it. So this is just full of beautiful, um, you know. Obviously, it's it's a beautiful text, and again, are always these texts are always loaded with good theology. So the first verse. Hail, star of the sea, blessed mother of God and ever virgin, happy gate of heaven. Mm. Receiving that Ave from the mouth of Gabriel, establish us in peace changing the name of Eve. Now, I do have to pause here because there is a little play on the word, on the name Eve, Eva, Eva, mm-hmm. and the Ave nice. given by the angel Gabriel. Yes. So that was the turning point, right, where Mary became the new Eve.
0: Wow.
1: And uh, the, the, the uh, angelic salutation was her invitation to say yes. That's so cool. To her role in uh, salvation wow. history. So that's a beautiful little uh, little tidbit there. Uh, and the third verse, I'll just go on here. Loosen the chains of sinners. Give light to the blind. Drive away our ills. Obtain for us all good things. Keep going. All right.
0: Just, just, keep, just read us all the verses.
1: <laughs> Show yourself a mother. May he hear thy prayers. Who, born for us, was willing to be thy son. Virgin above all others. Meeker than all make us free from sin meek and pure obtain for us a pure life make safe our path that seeing jesus we may ever rejoice with thee to god the father be praise glory to christ on high honor to the holy spirit one in three amen
0: amen it is i was just i was just sitting here thinking you know this is this is not just a a hymn of praise of mary it's a prayer right this is asking for her intercession mm-hmm. right for her guidance leading us all the way all right now many people may not know this chant. that's so, true um, I'm looking forward to hearing this <laughs> all
2: right here we go Ave Maria, Stella, Dei, Mater, Alma, Atque Felix Cheli Porta su mensiludave Gabriele sore funda nos in pace mutans enormen salve in clare Proferlumen cecis, Mala nostra pele, Bona cuncta posse, sematrem Sumat per te preces, Qui pro nobis natus, tulit esse tus, virgo singularis, inter omnes mitis, nosculpis soluto. Mitis facet castos vitem presta puram, inter paratutum, ut videntes jesum, semper colete Sit laus Deo Patri, sumo Christo Decus, Spiritu Sancto, tribus honor unus. Amen.
0: That was so beautiful and i'm really glad you got to sing the entire thing i'm so glad we had enough time for uh-huh. it um if there's anyone out there like you know choir director music director who's listening right now that wants to incorporate this um tell us about this book that you were just singing out of
1: oh sure well you can find it anywhere if you just look it up online you'll be able to find I'm sure you could find the score but the book in particular, that I was just using is called The Parish Book of Chant, and it's a publication by the Church Music Association of America. Thank
0: Thank you you so much, Catherine Fishlock. If you'd like to have uh, Catherine come and uh, teach some chant, do some chant workshops for your choir, get in touch with us. Go to sonrisemorningshow.com. Let me know through uh, one of those uh, contact forms that you would like to get in touch with Catherine. We'll get you in touch with her. Catherine, it was so good to see you. Thank you.
1: Good to be here. You're welcome.
0: All right. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back.
3: Support is from Solidarity Health Share.
0: Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything,
1: even things that violate your beliefs? Have you ever felt there has to be a better way but didn't know you had any options? If you answered yes, I've got some good news for you there is a better way and a more affordable way. Solidarity HealthShare can save you hundreds of dollars each month while actually supporting your beliefs. Because the best news is that Solidarity HealthShare costs a whole lot less than insurance. It's time to jump in and put your money where your faith is and put some money back into your wallet at the same time.
3: Join
4: Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based healthcare sharing community. Prices start as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-334-3245. That's 844-334-3245. Solidarity HealthShare. 844-334-3245.
0: Coffee seems to become more important when any new school year rolls around, and this is a year to consider treating yourself to some truly delicious coffee.
5: For that, we can highly recommend Mystic Monk Coffee. And when you shop their site after clicking the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com, you earn us a commission to help fund the show.
0: You can also treat yourself to a new Sunrise Morning Show mug or travel mug in our online store.
5: Get a mug and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sunrisemorningshow.com.
0: That's sunrisemorningshow.com.
6: The Messy Family Podcast empowers mom and dads to embrace their sacred calling by helping you become a good parent and a great
5: spouse. You can hear the Messy Family Podcast as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates across the nation, all in one place, all free at EWTN Podcast Central. Visit EWTNradio.net slash podcasts today. Matt Swaim, joined now by Steve Ray from CatholicConvert.com. Of course, he's been to a lot of places that are mentioned in the Bible, so we like to tap his expertise on these questions. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Matt. We're talking about boats and ships in the Bible. About how many times are they mentioned?
6: Well, I love to do this. Every one of these shows, I love to figure it out. If you do a search for boats, ships, or sail, it's 167 times in the Bible. And if you add the word ark, when it's referring to the big boat, you have the whole uh, 216 times from Genesis, even to Revelation. Revelation mentioned sailing in boats at least twice. So one of the things that's interesting is people always think of the biblical lands as being like a desert, but in reality, that's really a wide ranging geography and, and there's water and there's lakes and there's seas and everything else as well. So boats and ships play a big part in the biblical story.
5: They certainly do, and I bet you there's a decent percentage of uh, listeners with little kids right now who have a Noah's Ark playset in their
6: home. (laughs) Not the right size, though. (laughs) I would hope not. (laughs) <laughs> no. their home would be inside the ark if that were the right. case. So. It's, it's uh, interesting when you take the numbers, it talks about cubits. It's so many cubits, but that means about the length of a forearm, 18 inches. So the arc would have been one and a half football fields. So a lot of guys are watching football this week. So, one and a half football fields long, higher than a four-story building. You could put four hundred and fifty semi-trailers, those big trucks, four hundred and fifty of them would fit in there, or one hundred twenty thousand sheep. It is a big, big boat that Noah made.
5: Yeah, it's a huge boat. Uh, but there's the biggest boat in the Bible. What would you consider? And I know we're 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 you know making some exceptions here. What would be the smallest boat in the
6: Bible? There's a little boat also called an ark, and that was what uh, baby Moses was put into. It was covered, the same thing, covered with pitch, like a tarry substance, and he was set to float in the Nile River. So the biggest one is the Ark of Noah, and the smallest one is the basket of the Ark of Moses.
5: Pretty cool. And uh, now we're looking at this you know, question of boats and ships in the Bible. What are the bodies of water? That they would most likely have been sailing on
6: well the jordan river is too small I and mean, you could even today we do little paddle boat kind of things you know on on uh, those blow up air rafts uh but it's too small in the dead sea there's no boats out there ever because it's just totally dead and it's like the salt would ruin any boats that you put out there. But the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee, whenever we see boats, most all the time, they are referring to something that's happening on the Mediterranean or on the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee, of course, a lot because of the fishermen. Jesus was out in a boat in Galilee. We'll talk about that in a minute. And it's kind of like the Mediterranean. It was like the Internet freeway system. In the ancient world, everybody's going on the Mediterranean to go back and forth between countries and major cities. So it, it served as the freeway system and even kind of as the uh, whole Internet system for the ancient world.
5: Well, it's certainly how St. Paul did his strongest evangelization. And, you know, February 10th on the U.S. calendar, we celebrate the Feast of St. Scholastica. But in Malta, there's a feast day. A big feast day, a national feast day involving one of Paul's uh, least successful boat trips. Well, I mean, I guess it was successful in its own way.
6: It was uh, because it uh, converted the island of Malta. But uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 that he had three shipwrecks. But actually, we know of four because in the end of the book of Acts, we have the longest detailed shipwreck or even a ship ride in Acts chapter 26, 27, where he is on a ship Alex from Alexandria, Egypt, carrying grain. And by the way, it was really tough to take uh, ships back then because you, they were not cruise ships they were cargo ships and you had to rent space on the deck so paul would have rented space this little uh 50 square foot is for timothy and i and and luke and they lived on the deck of the ship and the ship crashed into the island of malta and if you want to watch that and see what it is uh i'm putting up my video of the of the uh, shipwreck and where i went out to malta and actually found the place where paul crashed
5: you know it's interesting uh You know, you probably remember this as a Baptist. I certainly remember this as, uh, you know, a free Methodist and Nazarene and such things. You know, we had churches named, you know, Divine Word So-and-So or Community Fellowship or Harvest or whatever. Uh, But then you go to Malta, you find the Church of St. Paul shipwrecked. I would have never thought to name a church after St. Paul's boat crash.
6: Right, <laughs> I know, but it is—it's the major church there, looking out over off from the cliff, looking out over the bay where he crashed. But the churches are smart; they they make their names based on things that actually took place there, like the bones of Saint Peter, you know, uh, 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 Paul. I mean, out outside the wall. So there's a lot of churches named, and like we talked a while ago about too, there's the Church of Saint Paul's Vision, where he had his conversion experience in Syria. So I like the Church of uh, Saint Paul's ship crash shipwreck
5: yeah it's pretty fascinating now uh there are a couple of things that i want to talk about first of all uh let's talk about the church as a boat because this is an image uh that we see a lot in the church fathers uh you know peter fisherman obviously but the church a boat that's a pretty cool image
6: well, it is. And as we go through this in the Bible series, all of the things, the physical objects and uh, that we're going to be discussing in places, also all have deep spiritual significance. And that's the reading of the Bible on a literal level, but also the church is always encouraged the reading it on a spiritual level, finding the spiritual meaning. So, uh, for example, Jesus got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and pushed out from the land. And he sat and began to teach the people from the boat. Now, that's called... in in. Uh, Hit church history and in Bible study is the bark of Peter or the boat of Peter. And where is Jesus teaching? from the ship of Peter. And what is that? That's the church. Jesus gave Peter the keys of the kingdom. He says, you're gonna be in charge of my church. And so this was Peter's boat and Jesus is in that boat teaching. And he's still in the boat teaching today from that ship, which is the church. But also it's a figure of the little ship, a little boat that Jesus was in when it was out in the waters and it got tossed by the waves and they were out fishing for men, which is like evangelism. They were out in the world today, but there are storms and tribulations tribulations that hit the church and they get panicked, but Jesus is still there in the boat. And you may not realize it because he may be sleeping. He's not sleeping actually, but he may not be acting the way you expect. And then you say, Lord, Lord, save us. And he stands up and he stops the waves and the, and the church, again, the ship has peace and calm. So this, in the, in the fathers of the church, they saw several images, both from the, the being the bark of Peter from which Jesus teaches or a picture of the church in the world tossed by the waves that will uh Jesus is still there with us he's in the boat with us he's in the church with us today and he is still in charge and he can do what he wants and so we have to trust him
5: absolutely and you know a lot of people ask you know what you know there's so much chaos and confusion and division in the church and i say yeah i know it's a uh, pretty pretty wild up there don't get off the boat
6: <laughs> no no no, no. <laughs> you, the, if you're ever the in the storm as much the alternative yeah, is bad. much worse.
5: <laughs> Get eaten by a sea monster or something. You don't yeah, want that. that. You don't want that. My
6: that's gosh. another boat story with uh, yeah. Jonah, who got thrown. That's probably the most famous Old Testament exactly. story of a ship with Jonah, who was running away from the Lord, and he jumped off. They threw him off the boat, actually, and he was eaten by the big fish. And that is the. Old Testament prophecy of Jesus being in the earth and raising again the story of Jonah and the ship. So all of these ship and boats have such significance to us, but oftentimes we ignore these objects as unimportant. But if we stop and take a look at them like we're doing every week, we see all the deep spiritual meanings of there and even the resurrection of Christ in the story of Jonah.
5: Absolutely. Now, I know that you take your groups out on boats on the Sea of Galilee when you go out on your pilgrimages, and I wish we had time for the full story. But in the meantime, I know if people go to your website, they can see some pictures of a time when you went night fishing with the locals on the Sea of Galilee, just like Peter and Andrew would have done with Jesus.
6: That was a highlight of my life going out. I got talking to these fishermen. They invited me to go out with them. And I spent the night fishing on the Sea of Galilee with Peter, Andrew, James, and John all yelling back and forth in Hebrew to each other. It was one of those uh, incarnational moments, but I'll have some pictures up on my website.
5: I'm sure you smelled great when you came back to revisit oh, your it pilgrims. Oh,
6: and I was so seasick, I thought I was going to die.
5: <laughs> Those guys are pros. Don't try that at home. <laughs> well, we got CatholicConvert.com linked at SunriseMorningShow.com. Thanks so much, Steve Ray. Have a wonderful day. We'll talk to you soon.
6: Thank you. Look forward to it.
5: I'm Matt Swaim, and you're listening to the best of a Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back.
7: What does the Church say about contraceptives? The Catholic Church is very specific and unwavering in her teachings that the use of contraceptives to prevent pregnancy is, in every case, immoral and intrinsically evil, a serious moral wrong. People sometimes ask why the Church is so adamant when they feel this should be a couple's decision. The fact is that the procreation of children is one of the inherent purposes of marriage and as such cannot in any way be interfered with by any means, mechanical or chemical. The marriage sexual act is God's way of continuing the human race. To accept God's wonderful gift of sexual relations without also being open to the possibility of conception is to void God's plan. To employ any means of preventing conception as a result of sexual relations can never be justified, even if a couple is married. For more information, contact your local pastor or refer to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 2362 through 2366. or Sacred Heart Radio, this is Deacon Bill Malini.
0: Back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Jeff Cabins. He's behind many of the resources you get with the Great Adventure Bible Study program through Ascension Press. Jeff, good morning. Thanks good for morning,
8: being here. Anna. Good to be with you.
0: All right. So I want to talk to you about reading the Bible. You know, there are a lot of people that, that say they want to read their Bibles more, but they don't know how to do it. And so I'm hoping to get some tips from you. Is that all right?
8: That's what I'm here for. Absolutely.
0: Great. So first of all, when it comes to actually reading the Bible, you've picked out your shiny new Bible. Do you start on page one and read straight through?
8: Well, that's what most people do and uh, doesn't quite work. No. And the reason it doesn't work is that You know the story. Maybe you've gone through it, and I'm sure many of our listeners have gone through it. And like you said, I'm going to read the Bible this year. Mm -hmm. I'm excited. I'm going to do it. So you go out and you buy a brand new Bible, you know, because the old one doesn't work. Right, exactly. So you go get your brand new Bible. You get a notebook and a pen, and you're ready to go. And you got to wait till January 1st. Mm -hmm. So January 1st rolls around. You open up to Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You keep reading in January. This is great. great. This is great. You know, you got, you got uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all these great stories. You read into February, and then right around March, you quit. And you quit because you're in Leviticus. <laughs> and you have no idea what's happening anymore. Mm-hmm. The truth of the matter is you lost the story. Mm-hmm. You lost the narrative. And in movies, books, plays... Anything, storytelling, you lose the story, people lose interest, they quit. And I think it's true of our lives too. You know, a lot of teenagers today, have, they've lost the narrative thread of their lives. They don't know where they came from or who they are, or where they're going. And in Bible study, it's the same way, you quit. And the reason is you lost the story. So one of the biggest, the biggest problems that we face is people's mindset about the Bible in general. And that's this, they think it's a book. Right. It looks like a book, it feels like a book, it opens like a book. Must be a book. It's not a book. What? It is not a book. I'm here on the Sunrise Morning Show to announce the Bible is not a book. It's a library. 73 books, mm. and they're not in order. And, and this, is the, this is funny. I mean, I used to be a Protestant pastor for 12 years. Right. This is one of the funniest things, is that very seldom does anybody teach anybody how to read the Bible. Mm -hmm. Isn't that crazy? It's the the number one seller of all time. But how many people can say, oh, yeah, there's so many courses on how to read it correctly. You've got to be taught how to read the Bible. So what what we do is we treat it like a library, and it is made up of different types of literature. You've got historical books. You've got prophets. You've got wisdom literature. You've got uh, poetry, and you've got gospels and epistles, and you've got all these. And they're just kind of brought together in groups and then stitched together in what looks like a book. So what we do in The Great Adventure is we show you how to how to walk through this and how to read it as a narrative so you get the big picture or the big story. And that's the, the thing that most people have a very difficult time doing. They know about David and Goliath. Mm-hmm. They know about Noah and the flood. They know about Elijah. They know about Mary. They know about Paul. They know about Peter. But they can't put it all together. So what, what we do with the Great Adventure Bible Timeline is we show you how to read it in chronological order, and here's what we do. The first thing we do is we choose, we, we, we literally make 12 periods of salvation history, 12 periods, and then out of the 73 books, we identify the 14 that are narrative in approach, narrative in style and then we show you where the other 53 fit in the context of those 14 books and 12 periods. So in other words, we take the complex and we make it simple. So you ask the question, where should people begin? I truly believe that people should begin their Bible study by knowing the whole story. So you begin to read Genesis and Exodus, and we skip Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Mm -hmm. and you go to Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, then you go into 1st Maccabees, Luke, and Acts. Those are the 14. If you read those, you pretty much get the flow of the story. And then we show you where Leviticus (laughs) fits in the proper context.
0: It's an interesting approach, Jeff. Why has nobody ever done that before?
8: Well, you know, when you look back in church history, St. Augustine did something similar. And a Hugh of St. Victor also did something similar. It's not as pretty as this chart, but— It is a pretty chart. <laughs> it's, but but they, did, they did have the same concept, and it was basically it was pick out the major events in salvation history and focus on those first— you tell the story and then start filling in the details so i think that saint augustine and Hugh of saint victor both had kind of the same idea but but you ask a good question why isn't there more of this and that's probably the most common question that i get is why hasn't anybody done this before Mm -hmm. my answer i don't know i did it for myself Mm -hmm. i was a young 26 year old pastor and I knew the stories, but I had a very difficult time stitching it all together. And just sitting outside of my Hebrew class at the University of Minnesota, the idea came literally in a flash. A chart. I'm going to put a chart together. I'm going to, I want to see the story. I want to see it. And in two days, I created it. So...
0: Two days?
8: In two days, I put together that whole chart, the whole apparatus. And uh, wow. And I took all my history books out and just, I didn't sleep either for two days.
0: <laughs> well, I would imagine not. That's pretty <laughs> impressive. Well done. Jeff, do you have any rituals that you use to kind of help you when you go back reading through the Bible? I'm sure you've read it cover to cover many times at this point.
8: Yeah, I have. I've, I've read it. Uh, when you talk about rituals, I'm I'm assuming you're talking about disciplines like, mm-hmm. like Lexio Divina, that type of thing, or the rituals of daily reading.
0: Yeah, the rituals of daily. When somebody sure. goes to sit down and read their Bible, mm-hmm. say they're, okay, so every morning, Before they go to work, they're going to sit down for 15, 20 minutes and just go through a passage of the Bible. Right. What do you suggest they do so that it's not just... You know, in and out right. in that twenty minutes, that you actually retain something.
8: Well, number one, um, reading the Bible is not an intellectual exercise or a literary exercise. Uh, it, I mean, it can be for some, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but the Bible is a love letter written by God to you. He's he is. Uh, Condescending, he's coming to your level mm-hmm. to communicate. So, the uh, Vatican two tells us that in Bible reading, what we have is we have a father coming down to spend time with his children and revealing himself. Mm-hmm. So, Bible reading is a relationship. And the best tool that I know of is uh, Lexio Divina, which can be done on a daily basis, takes about 20 minutes. But the key, as you were alluding to, is uh, uh, consistency. Mm-hmm. Uh, find a place where you can meet Jesus. I would say, don't find a place where you can read the Bible. Find a place where you can meet Jesus, mm. because He'll speak to you in the Bible. And uh, get a notebook, maybe a small moleskin notebook or something like that, with mm. a pen, and uh, and and make sure that it's 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 good time. Give Jesus the best time of the of the day. And and Lexio Divina is really that great. You know. Uh, art of reading and talking to God where it's four steps. The first is Lexio. You read the text that you want. I would suggest the gospel of the day, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And you read it slowly, maybe out loud, and you listen to what word or phrase is popping out at you. Mm -hmm. It's jumping up and saying, Anna, I'm for you today. You know, Mm -hmm. there might be 300 words there, but two of them are, I'm for you. And you write that down. Then you move on to meditation. So it's Lexio reading, meditatio meditation you put yourself in that story you begin to meditate and see yourself in Jesus and you re- interacting and uh, you begin to listen to what he may be saying to you in your life today and you move into the third phase which is oratio which is prayer you actually begin talking to him how does this apply to my life and like if you're reading psalm 23 the lord is my shepherd i shall not want if there's a phrase like he causes me to lie down in green pastures to talk to him and to say you know lord that's that's the phrase that jumped out at me today do you want me to relax in you how can i relax in you where are the green pastures in my life? And the thought may come, a holy hour. Mm-hmm. You have to take that as God speaking to you. Mm-hmm. He created you to listen. So in the prayer part of it, the third phase, you're really, you're really dialoguing with Jesus. And then the fourth is contemplatio, which is contemplation. And that's, that's not so much something that you do as uh, uh, somewhere you were, where you arrive. And that is you're just enjoying the fruit of the first three steps and mm-hmm. saying, Thank you. And then you make some resolve for the day of what you're going to take into the day. And you'll be surprised at at how God gives you opportunities to walk in that throughout the day. So I think those are some keys to reading the Bible. But the first thing is get to know the whole Bible.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I want to ask you one more thing that I remember from my days as a Bible Timeline student, you talking about colored pencils.
8: yeah. That is a long time ago.
0: What do you do with colored pencils?
8: Well, you know, in the old days, I guess you're part of that now, Mm -hmm. even though you are so young, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) you had to create your own Bible timeline chart and you had uh, every set came with colored pencils and you would use those to write in the chart Mm -hmm. according to that color. Of of that period, you can still do that, you know, on your on your own chart today. But we had we had bracelets back then, and we mm-hmm. had pencils, and people really enjoyed the interactive uh, activities of uh, of learning the Bible. But we don't have those pencils anymore. But you are free to buy them at your craft store.
0: Well, we'll send people to the local uh, local grocery store pick up a <laughs> pick up some crayons or colored pencils, and uh, it really is helpful to use colors and to sort of, you know, orient your mind in that way. It's a I think mnemonic that's,
8: device. It's a yeah. memory device, yeah.
0: We've been talking to Jeff Cavins, and you can go to ascensionpress.com. You can find all kinds of great resources related to the Great Adventure Bible series, including the Great Adventure Bible itself, the Bible Timeline, the Catholic Guide to the Old Testament, and all of their podcasts as well, ascensionpress.com. Jeff, it was so good to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank
8: you, Anna. God bless you.
0: And you as well. And we would love for you to connect to all of our guests that you hear on the Sunrise Morning Show. Go to sonrisemorningshow.com where you can find our show notes. Be sure to click subscribe, and you can get all the information linked in your inbox every morning as we go on the air. sonrisemorningshow.com. It's 35 past the hour.
9: You listen to the Sunrise Morning Show. Well, imagine promoting your business right here to other listeners of the Sunrise Morning Show. You'll reach like-minded folk across the nation on over 300 radio stations, each of those stations with thousands and thousands of listeners, not to mention all the people who listen on Sirius Satellite and our online app. Find out more about national underwriting of the Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at SacredHeartRadio.com, L-E-A-H at SacredHeartRadio.com.
10: I'm Father Timothy Shear, and these are Biblical Impressions. There are people in the Bible whose names we never learn, but their lives are perfect examples of faith. This is true for a father simply called the royal official. This man comes to Jesus with an urgent request. His son lies sick at home near the point of death. The father rushes off to Cana, some 12 miles from their home in Capernaum by the sea. All the way, he was determined to bring Jesus with him back to his son's bedside in Capernaum, where Jesus would place his hands on the child and heal him. But something truly amazing happens. He comes back without Jesus by his side. On the way, his servants catch up with him and announce his son is cured. He asked when his son made a turn for the better, and they said at the hour that Jesus had announced his son would live. The father believes simply on the basis of the word Jesus spoke. We have much to learn from this official and his example of faith. For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Timothy Shear.
5: I'm Matt Swame, joined now by Father Boniface Hicks. We've been going through his book, Personal Prayer A Guide for Receiving the Father's Love, and talking about vulnerability specifically and uh, different ways to be more vulnerable in prayer. Father Boniface, good morning.
11: Good morning, Matt. Great to be with you.
5: So, you've got this little section about this idea of vulnerability in the Mass and how. Uh, there are ways that the liturgy calls us kind of right out of the gates to sort of confess and admit our vulnerability and need for God. So how does that play out?
11: Yeah, just to, to set the context, prayer is about relationship, and relationships really grow through trust, and trust involves vulnerability to actually open our hearts and let ourselves be seen and show ourselves to, to another person, and that begins to develop intimacy as we share our hearts as we share our interiority. And certainly the Mass is the the greatest prayer, and we could say because it is the God himself becomes so profoundly vulnerable in the Mass. Vulnerability begets vulnerability. Somebody's got to take the first step, and God certainly did that beyond anything we could have dreamed of.
7: In becoming
11: flesh and dwelling among us and giving everything for us on the cross, and then in entrusting his whole body, blood, soul, and divinity to us in the Eucharist. And so God becomes so vulnerable. And uh, John Paul II called the Mass the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride and looked at the Mass through that, that spousal lens. Jesus becomes so vulnerable as the divine bridegroom in order to win us over and to help us open our hearts. And then uh, we get that through the right to the Mass, just as you were saying, Matt, that right at the beginning... We're invited to call to mind our sins. We, it, in positions of power, you know, you can imagine uh, foreign powers uh, meeting with each other, presidents of nations negotiating terms, all of their bargaining chips on the table, and they know where their, their, uh, their power lies, and, and it's, uh, it's a power game. But the mass is exactly the opposite. God pours out everything and makes himself radically vulnerable and invites us to do the same, not to come in with, all of our accomplishments, the reasons why we deserve the Eucharist or uh, why we deserve His love, we don't show off how well we've done since the last time we were there, we start by acknowledging our deep need, our need for a Savior, our need for His mercy. We show Him the the broken, bruised, painful places in our hearts as we acknowledge our sins, right, right at the beginning of the Mass.
10: It's
5: kind of jarring if you're not paying close attention, uh, you know, to to how this is all playing out. You know, there's, you know, all kinds of liturgical reflection that discusses how, in some ways, salvation history is sort of happening in a progression through the course of the Mass. And, you know, there's this this sense, um, even in the way that it's structured right at the beginning, the beauty of, you know, it's not very long after you say, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all, and we say, with your spirit— like, just seconds later, you're like, now let us call to mind our sins, <laughs> right? It is very quick. Like, it is shockingly quick if, if you pay attention to it. Yeah,
11: and uh, that greeting is that beautiful greeting. He's already given us everything. and He's already promised that he loves us and has mercy on us. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to acknowledge how much we need him and how broken we are and the mistakes that we've made and the ways that we've failed him. Don't be afraid. Bring that in because the danger would be that we let that go and then we only engage the sacred mysteries from a place of strength and then they don't really transform our lives there are the, these sections of our lives that, that never get touched by grace these places of darkness in us that never see the light uh, i think in twelve-step programs they they often say you're only as sick as your secrets and so the mass is telling us don't have anything don't have any secrets bring all the sickness right out into the light before the Lord and let Him love you
12: there. You
5: know, what's fascinating is that the church calls us to be vulnerable to God in this moment, but it also calls us to be vulnerable to one another. Not in specifics. It's easy for me when I pray those words in the penitential act, you know, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned. I always think about that in terms of me confessing to my brothers and sisters that I have sinned, and I always forget that they're confessing to me <laughs> that they've sinned too. Like, we're kind of all in the same boat at this point.
11: It's so true, Matt, and I, I also have reflected on that, especially uh, living in a monastic community, we're all coming together for mass, and we've, we've all heard each other enough times over the last 25 years for me. So just hearing, hearing that and saying that, and, and then obviously we don't want them to become empty words that were shocking the first time we said them, but now everybody just says them and so they don't mean anything anymore. We want to renew them in just the way that, that you and I are talking about now, so that they can recover their meaning and can really be words that expose the heart and bring forth healing between us and God. And then, just as you're pointing out, the, the healing in relationships with brothers and sisters as well, that we're all humbly acknowledging we're on the same plane here. We're, we're all in the same place. We all need to admit that we've hurt each other, and, and we all need to reconcile over that.
5: Well, I suppose that there is a a Lutheran way to look at this uh, penitential act and a, and a Catholic way to look at this penitential act. Um, the The Lutheran I'm I mostly mean in the specific theology of Luther as you know and, and Calvin as well that that you and I are totally deprived and that we are no good in ourselves, and anything that happens that's good to us is just, you know, God looking the other way, (laughs) you know, or snow Mm. on a a pile of manure. Uh, So, you know, you could say, I confess to Almighty God that I'm just garbage, and I don't deserve to be here. Whereas as as Catholics, uh, we're saying something very different about what a human being is, and, and what happens when we become vulnerable here, and what God does in relationship to us. So I wonder maybe if you could help us to enter into that prayer without saying, I confess to Almighty God that I'm just a piece of garbage.
11: Yeah, I think uh, the, the Catholic theology would be sort of the opposite of it. Uh, maybe a dung-heap-covered pile of snow. <laughs> and so the uh, acknowledging our sins is a way of just carving through that external layer and allowing, in fact, the uh, that will bring us to the goodness of communion, of intimacy with uh, with the Lord, because he has redeemed us to the core through, well, through his blood on the cross, through baptism, and he wants to connect with us beneath the layer of sin that we keep putting on top of that, that we mar our own image and that we fail to see the image of his image in others
5: great things to reflect upon father boniface hicks we've got your book personal prayer linked at sunrise morning show.com have a great day you too matt thanks thanks for listening to the best of the sunrise morning show we'll be right back
4: the first annual Dominican Rosary Pilgrimage, sponsored by the Dominican Friars Foundation, will take place on Saturday, September thirtieth, at the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. This all-day event will feature conferences by Father Gregory Pine, Resuscitation of the Rosary, a Ferverino by Father Lawrence Liu, and Mass with Father James Brent as Homilist. Join us for this day of prayer to Our Lady. For more information, visit rosarypilgrimage.org. That's rosarypilgrimage.org.
5: Support for the Sunrise Morning Show is from Visiting Angels. Visiting Angels provides experienced, compassionate care to millions of aging adults nationwide by keeping them safe and healthy in the comfort of their own home. Whether it's a short break for caregivers or for long-term assistance, Visiting Angels provides hygiene, meals, light housework, companionship, and more. And services are available up to 24 hours per day. Visiting Angels, online at visitingangels.com. That's visitingangels.com. Franchise opportunities available. Looking for a taste of summer to start your day? Look no further than Mystic Monk Coffee, where you can find a number of special summer blends like banana rum and coconut margarita.
0: And you can earn a commission for the Sunrise Morning Show when you go to sonrisemorningshow.com first and click our link to the Mystic Monk site.
5: While at our site, be sure to check out our online store and pick up a Sunrise Morning Show travel mug to take on your summer road trip.
0: Get your mug and link to Mystic Monk Coffee at sunrisemorningshow.com.
5: That's sunrisemorningshow.com.
0: Turn to Mary, the Mother of God,
13: for help bearing witness to the gift of life with the National Life Rosary. Designed exclusively for EWTN, the unique centerpiece and crucifix represent the reality that all life is sacred and begins at conception. Help build a culture of life with the National Life Rosary. Available now at EWTNRC.com. EWTN is the Global Catholic
0: Network. Joining us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Father Sebastian Walsh. He's a Norbertine priest at St. Michael Abbey, where you can find their Abbot's Circle with a lot of great resources over there currently. And we've been going through his book from Catholic Answers Press, Always a Catholic, How to Keep Your Kids in the Faith for Life and Bring Them Back if They Have Strayed. Good morning, Father.
14: Good morning, Annie.
0: So we're continuing our way through the chapter offering thoughts and and some hope in the various ways that our children can fall away from the faith. And today we're going to be discussing when an adult child gets married outside of the church. Now, this happens so often, Father, that folks not mm-hmm. might not even realize that that this could be problematic. If you love someone, why should it matter whether or not they're Catholic?
14: Yeah, in fact, I would say... It's, it's likely that most people who are raised Catholic don't even know that if they marry outside the Church, that marriage is invalid, meaning in the eyes of God, they're not married. And that's a striking statement, but just the fact that most people don't even know that is a striking indictment on the, the state of catechesis in our country today.
0: Can you explain, because, I, I mean, I hate to use this kind of terminology because it makes it sound like this is some arbitrary thing, but but what are the, the rules that guide marriage outside of the Church, and why does the Church put these rules in place?
14: That's a great question. You know, the Church only has basically six <laughs> six rules you have to follow over the course of your life that are essential. So it's not like the whole bunch of rules. I mean, you have the Ten Commandments, obviously, but there are six rules that are instituted by the Church itself saying, for the good of the faithful, you have to do these things. For example, you have to go to Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. You have to go to confession at least once a year. And one of those six rules is you have to get married inside the Church with the blessing of the Church. And the reason for that is that the Church, over her 2,000-year history, knows well that when... A couple marries outside of the Church, then the practice of the faith almost never gets handed on to their children. So for the sake of the next generation of Catholics, the Church has said, no, every Catholic needs to have the blessing of the Church when they get married. That way they can get proper formation about being married and what they need to know for marriage, and that way they'll know that their marriage is a sacrament, and and their children will be raised with that same consciousness of the faith. So it's really for the good of the faithful, and especially for the good of the children as well, that the Church implements this rule. And it is not onerous, meaning it's not like the Church requires, if you marry a non-Catholic, that you, that, that non-Catholic person has to convert and practice a Catholic faith. It doesn't require that even. It just requires that the Catholic Party agrees to raise the children Catholic, and that both parties agree that the marriage is for the sake of children and is intended to be lifelong. It's a very small burden for a very important thing.
0: Yeah, to take it to an even deeper level that I hope you can can speak to here, Father, when it when it comes to Christian unity and the Lord's high priestly prayer that we all be one as he mm-hmm. and the Father are one, I mean, if your marriage— is not unified in the most important way for it to be unified. Mm -hmm. Isn't that a lie?
14: Well, uh, I'll tell you that, that people usually marry outside the Church when the practice of their own faith is very weak. And so a lot of people will just deny one of those premises meanly. They don't think being Catholic is that important to their lives. And if that's your position, then obviously you've got bigger fish to fry, and this is a symptom of that you know, that you're marrying outside the Church and so forth. But the truth of the matter is, if you at least are willing to stop and say, hey, being a Catholic is not just a matter of just picking a religion so that you have a social group to attend, but being a Catholic is a matter of belonging to the Church founded by Jesus Christ, because He has given us the means to get to Heaven, and in order to get to Heaven, I need to follow the commandments of Jesus Christ. If you're at least willing to make that Observation, to step back regardless of how well you practice the faith, you'll be able to see right away that that is among the most important things, in fact, the most important thing that you're ever going to do with your life, that you're ever going to hand on to your children, that you're ever going to share with your spouse. So your marriage is going to be very defective if you don't share that same reality and if you're not on the same page with regard to passing on the faith to your children. Because finally, you know, if it happens that your spouse doesn't want your children to be Catholic, then you're going to have to live into your old age with the fear that your children will never have access to the means of salvation. And who wants to live like that?
0: Now, like we started off this conversation, there are a lot of marriages that happen where one is Catholic and another is a non Catholic. Does the Church have a way to bless those marriages, and if so, is that a conversation that a parent should have with their adult child who wants to enter into a marriage with a non-Catholic?
14: Yes. So being married inside the Church does not equal being married to a Catholic. Um, The Church is willing, under certain conditions, to bless a marriage between a Catholic and a non-Catholic, even a Catholic and a non-Christian, though that would not be a sacrament. So you have to get a dispensation for that. But the main requirements are that the non-Catholic spouse intend a lifelong marriage, and that that spouse is open to children, and finally that they are willing to to allow the Catholic spouse to educate their children in the Catholic faith. So those are the basic three requirements that are necessary to marry a non-Catholic. And as I said, that's a very generous from the Catholic Church, just basically saying, look, we're bending over backwards to make this easy, and we will bless your marriage as long as you seriously intend to do what marriage is for.
0: And so uh, there have been successful marriages um, where where two <clears throat> spouses have been united in that way with the blessing of the Church. I know of them in uh, people in my own life, in fact. Yeah. So... Um, I do too. So if you're a parent, your adult child decides to marry a non-Catholic, I mean, should you express concern or try to talk them out of it? Or maybe this conversation should have happened a lot earlier?
14: Yeah, okay. I always say on this point, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. (laughs) So, I mean, there's two things that you should be telling your small pre-married children. You should be telling them, one... If you decide to marry outside the Catholic Church, you have then disinvited me from your wedding. I won't be able to go to your wedding if you decide to marry outside the Catholic Church. Tell your six year old that, okay? So they know if they decide to marry outside the Catholic Church, they've decided that you're not going to be able to come. Wow. The second thing you should tell your children when they're young is there's a billion and, you know, 1.3 billion Catholics out there. That means there's. You know six hundred and fifty million Catholic women, try your best to marry someone who has your same faith if you can. <laughs> it's not like you you're lacking choices there because I don't know.
0: I know things- a lot of single ladies right now, uh Father Sebastian, who would love to find a a good Catholic man who's single and uh they they feel like they're they're just not out there or not or they're all entering <laughs> seminary.
14: I know. Right? He's like, "Well, I've kind of, I, I happen to know, for some reason, as a priest, I know all these single men that are looking for wonderful Catholic women and single women who are looking for together, wonderful fire. Catholic men. Yeah. I know I can't write exactly. I'm telling them, look, here they are, but for some reason they don't find each other. Hmm. Um, in any case, you encourage your child to say, hey, if your faith is important to you, and it should be, then that should be one of the first things you look for. Now I know, as you know, of many successful marriages where the, the spouse isn't Catholic, but they're not more successful because of the difference in faith. They would even be better if they had that union of faith, you know? And I also know cases where the spouse, right before the marriage converts, um, I know one very um, beautiful couple where the husband just told the the woman right at the beginning of the dating, you know, I know you're not Catholic, but I want you to know up front, I'm never going to marry someone who's not a Catholic, and that's not pressure on you. It's just letting you know who I am. And... She thought about it, she wrestled with it, but she eventually did become a Catholic, and she did that on her own, regardless of her husband's, you know, desire. And And uh, they have a beautiful family, and she's a very solid Catholic. So, in any case, I encourage parents to speak to their children early about that. As I said, an ounce of prevention is worth a, a pound of
0: cure. You can read more about it in Always a Catholic from Catholic Answers Press, shop.catholic.com or... You can find it linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. If you want to check out the uh, resources over at the Abbott's Circle from uh, Father's Abbey in California, go to theabbotscircle.com Father Sebastian, thank you so much.
14: Thank you so much, Annie. God
0: bless you. You too. Thank you, Father. And that'll do it for this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Thanks for listening. For Matt Swain and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace.
2: Arise, arise,
0: In this hour of the sunrise morning show with the angel of Fatima prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit amen most Holy Trinity Father Son and Holy Spirit I adore you profoundly I offer you the most precious body blood soul and divinity of Jesus Christ present in all the tabernacles of the world in reparation for the outrages sacrileges, and indifference by which he is offended and through the infinite merits of his most sacred heart and the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I beg of you the conversion of poor sinners, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. O my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good morning, and welcome to this special edition, the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and alongside Matt Swaim, we're going back to the archives this morning to share with you some of our favorite interviews of the past. Hope you enjoy the full hour ahead. We'll get started right now. It's two minutes past the hour. It's the Sunrise Morning Show, and Mike Aquilina is back with us from FathersOfTheChurch.com. His new book is called The Healing Imperative, The Early Church, and the Invention of Medicine as We Know It. Mike, good morning. Morning, Annie. Why do you call this book The Healing Imperative?
13: Well, because Jesus issued very few commands, but one of them is to heal. You know, he sends out the 70, and he says, says, um, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, Eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you it's a command it's an imperative he's telling them to do this, and they go out and they do it and what's interesting is that disciples of the Lord have been doing it ever since um, we've been we 've been offering a healing ministry in the world. we continue the healing work of Jesus Christ, and it's my contention that the whole um uh, business of of medicine the whole enterprise of medicine as we know it would not be what it is today if not for that that command of Jesus if not for and 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 if not for the obedience of christians who followed afterward
0: well mike let's back up to even before jesus and this imperative to heal the sick and and look at the old testament times how did the israelites view disease and then, how did Jesus turn that on its head?
13: Well, often it was viewed as a sign of uncleanness, of a, a, a sign of divine disfavor. It, it's, a, it's a sign, it's a, it's a symbol of sin. Uh, and so, so, um, so people who, who had certain diseases were made to live in isolation. They were made to live apart from the people. What we find from Jesus is that he's willing to expose himself uh, to that uncleanness and heal it you know so it's not as if the the uncle, the, the people who are diseased are making him unclean? No, he has this contagious holiness that he's sharing with them. Um, We see that as he he comes in contact with with lepers, uh, with uh, the woman with the flow of blood for many years, um, with so many people who would have been, been considered ritually unclean at that time. He doesn't fear that. He doesn't isolate them. He goes out to them, he heals them, and we see the Church Following that lead in the centuries afterward. This was a, a, a seismic shift in um in 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 the way um in, in the way people viewed disease.
0: Right. So Christians weren't afraid to touch people, say, with the plague.
13: Yeah, right. Even if it meant that they, they caught the plague. So many Christians in those early centuries died serving others, and they viewed that kind of death as an equal to martyrdom. The bishop uh, Dionysius the Great of Alexandria said so. He said that such a death is the equal of martyrdom, and we know how eagerly so many Christians sought martyrdom. You know, they were willing to die for Christ in in this way as well as they were willing to die for him in that way it was a a public witness of the faith to die taking care of another serving another healing another
0: and mike um you have a chapter in here called the great test what was that test
13: well you know uh there there um there there came these uh these, these epidemics during the time of Christianity, and often they reduced the, the population, a local population, or, or in, in at least one case, uh, the, 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 the population throughout, throughout the Roman Empire, by, about, by as much as 30%. I mean, you think about that. Suddenly, you know, a third of the people on your block are gone. You'll never see them again. Um, and, and, uh, and what happened when, when, um, when an epidemic came to your town uh, was, uh, was that the physicians were the first to leave because they knew enough about the symptoms to, to recognize the disease. Uh, they also knew that there was nothing they could do to stop the disease, that it would spread very soon. So they would try to spirit their family away. And keep their family safe, and you can't blame them for doing that. It's only with the rise of Christianity do we find medical personnel, doctors, staying back to take care of the sick, and and they took care uh, not only of the Christian uh, sick, but also the pagans. And so many of those pagans who did survive. Were then eager to take on uh, baptism, so you can see that this was good for the church's growth, even at a time when, um, at a time when the the general population uh, was plummeting.
0: It's incredible, and of course, after sickness for many can come death. And of course, I think it goes without saying, especially when we're talking about the time of early Christianity. In many cases, this disease was going to lead to death inevitably. So, Mike, how did Christians, in addition to the witness they had in caring for the bodies of the sick, also witness in the way that they cared for the bodies of the dead?
13: Well, well the Christians had, had this respect, profound respect, for, um, for the dignity of the human person, and that included the human body. We are composite creatures of body and soul. So there was respect for the body, even to the end, you know the christians never never lost that respect as a matter of fact they when they were ministering to the body of another, they were ministering to the body of Christ, part of the life of Christ is the death of Christ, and then the burial of Christ and Christians uh, followed that uh, that, um, that that progress uh, faithfully and so we, we see that there was that kind of um, that kind of witness, uh, and, and what's interesting is that um, that the way they treated the body uh, really did have an effect on um, the public witness of their their faith in the resurrection. People found their faith to be credible because of the way they witnessed to this, and it had this effect of spreading the faith uh, abroad.
0: And, Mike, what did the legalization of Christianity do for the Christian imperative to heal the sick?
13: Well, that was a big, big—hold uh, uh, on, let me, let me start over. Uh, well, well, that caused this exponential growth in, um, in, in an institutional form of, um, of medical care. For the first time in history, we find the emergence of the institution called the hospital— Never before in human history was there anything like a hospital. There were great civilizations, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, they all had great civilizations. They did not have hospitals. Never before had anyone produced such an institution. It took Christianity with its special view of charity and that element of courage to the death in service of another. All of these things came together to create this institution that had had never before appeared on the planet. We see in the years of persecution, the years before Christianity was legal, that the most most popular um, profession for Christians to undertake was the profession of physician that this is, uh, you know, more Christians are, are, are recorded uh, going into this field than any other field, more than plumbers or seamstresses or, or lawyers or, or any anything else. There, there are more physicians. So there was this tendency to go in that direction, and I believe there were organized efforts during the times of the plague to care for the sick. They were, they were, They were probably home-based, though. Once Christianity is legalized, then we can have these institutions. And within 50 years, these institutions, hospitals, became a standard part of any city that, that wanted to be called a city, or, and, and any city that wanted to be called Christian.
0: And finally, Mike, what was the role of monasteries in all this?
13: Well, monasteries were a little bit ahead of the curve, and even during the time of persecutions, they would have these infirmaries, these sick bays where the monks would rest while they were sick, and they couldn't keep up with the level of work and prayer that the rest of the monks were doing. They would, they would go there, and they'd have a comfortable bed, and they'd get their regular meals. They would be served by the other monks. This became a model um, for the hospitals. As, as they emerged in the 4th century. Uh, as a matter of fact, Basil the Great, who built the largest hospital of the 4th century, perhaps, it was, it, was, it was called a city in itself, and it's likely that he modeled that on the much smaller infirmaries that he had seen when he made his grand tour of, of the monasteries as a young man.
0: Very cool. The book is called The Healing Imperative, The Early Church and the Invention of Medicine as We Know It. And Mike Aquilina, if listeners want to find it or any of your other books, where can they go?
13: Fathersofthechurch.com.
0: You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell. We'll be right back. Are you looking for peace?
1: Longing for joy? Want to meet the giver of all goodness? God is calling the laity to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world. Work for the new evangelization. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Order your free digital training and manual. Find true happiness and everlasting joy. Go to lordteachmetopray.com and click on the red button today. It's free. Approved by the USCCB.
4: For more than 150 years, the Comboni missionaries have served the poorest and most forgotten people. With our founders and Daniel Comboni as an inspiration, we work for the full development of the human person through evangelization, education, and advocacy. Your donations make a huge impact, and 95% are used to fund our many projects. Find out more at combonimissionaries.org. That is combonimissionaries.org.
9: You listen to the Sunrise Morning Show. Well, imagine promoting your business right here to other listeners of the Sunrise Morning Show. You'll reach like-minded folk across the nation on over 300 radio stations, each of those stations with thousands and thousands of listeners, not to mention all the people who listen on Sirius Satellite and our online app. Find out more about national underwriting of the Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at SacredHeartRadio.com. L-E-A-H at SacredHeartRadio.com.
4: The most original and exclusive Catholic content is on EWTN Radio.
9: This is Dr. Ray
15: Garandi from The Doctor Is In. You call in, and we will talk about what matters to you in your life. We can put our heads together to help you solve the problems of life and to use your faith to get even smarter.
1: The doctor is in with Dr. Ray Gurindy. This afternoon, 1 Eastern on EWTN Radio.
0: Always happy to catch up with Rita Heikenfeld from abouteating.com talking about beauty secrets of the Bible today, Rita.
16: Yes, you know, we're going off course a
0: little bit. (laughs) I love it, though. This is going to be fun. So a lot of trendy beauty products come from oils, fruits, nuts, and things that were used during Bible days.
16: You know what, Anna, you're absolutely right. And it's fun to make some of the real trendy spa products that you see now in the stores, etc., with those same good ingredients.
0: Yeah, DIY. So tell us about almonds.
16: Well, we know that almonds were, were, gosh, they were such a popular nut, and they're mentioned lots of times in Genesis in Chapter 43. Almonds were one of the gifts that Jacob sent down to Joseph in Egypt. And, you know, when you think of uh, facial scrubs today— one of the most popular, Annie, is one that uses ground-up oatmeal, finely ground almonds, and some type of liquid like milk or something like that. Um, and, of course, we know milk's also mentioned throughout the Bible, and it also uses almond oil in that scrub. And you can add a little almond oil to your bathwater, too, and your skin will just soak it up.
0: Hmm. Now... Let's talk about roses, because we've heard before in your segments that red roses are symbolic of the blood that Christ shed during the crucifixion, but they also represent our Blessed Mother's pure beauty.
16: Yeah, they do. And I have... uh two little rose bushes, miniature rose bushes, planted in the Bible section of my herb garden. And here's the deal. If you have rose petals, and especially the fragrant ones, you can make a, a sort of a face spritzer, Annie. It's a great toner for your skin, and all you do is steam some rose petals in some distilled or filtered water. The reason is roses have astringent qualities, and so they're really good for firming up your skin. Plus, it cleanses some of the toxins that we see every day in our environment.
0: Everyone knows how olive oil is something that was used all the time during Bible times.
16: Oh, yeah. You know, it was the most used oil back in Bible days because of the olive trees that were so abundant. We know it was used for cooking and also for lighting lamps. And then I love this passage in Matthew in chapter 25. It talks about if you have no olive oil, you have no light literally and figuratively I would add and then um, olive oil was used as an anointing oil for the skin and it was also rubbed on the skin to keep it supple because of that when you think of that climate that hot dry climate and you know what I still use olive oil as a skin softener and also as a conditioner for my hair if it gets dry or if the little ones have like itchy dry scalp sometimes cradle cap I'll uh, rub a little olive oil on that before shampooing so it's just a wonderful useful oil
0: One that you can just find in your cabinet. Nice nice solution there. Now, um, let's talk about Moses for a second and uh, his use of oils. He kind of made this blend of oils to calm his people and and prevent disease. Yeah, he
16: did. You know, I have to laugh. I always say he was the original aromatherapist. (laughs) (laughs) And wouldn't you love to know this recipe that he used? He used oil of cinnamon and then spices like hyssop, frankincense and myrrh, which, by the way, are all mentioned in the Bible as, as, um, as well. And he used those as a base for a real soothing oil, like you said. This was supposed to help protect the Israelites from the plague. And then you think of Cleopatra. We all know how she loved to take milk baths. And I'm assuming, of course, it was goat's milk, um, because that's what they had so much of. And, you know, that's a real trendy product now. If you buy a, um, like, a uh, bath... Uh, Salt, it sometimes has goat's milk in it to soothe your skin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, talking about milk, it not only soothes the skin, Annie, but it can help exfoliate it as well. Um, And, again, you'll find both um, all those oils and milks as ingredients in expensive skin products.
0: How do you keep it from going bad? I guess well, you just have you to use it quickly. Milk.
16: Yeah, that's oh. a good point. I, when I make my uh, bath salts, etc., I'll use dry milk. But you can use fresh milk, too, to exfoliate your skin with a little bit of um, oil if you like, too. But you wouldn't want to just keep that on the, in the pantry for sure.
0: <laughs> okay, got it. So uh, when I'm starting to get close to the expiration date on my milk, I'll just start using it as an exfoliator rather than drinking it. Uh, or pour a little in, in your bath water. <laughs> Excellent. Now, we're going to go on and talk about honey now, which is mentioned in Exodus Chapter 3, among many other places. And, of course, that was an important food product, but it's also an important beauty product? I didn't know this.
16: Yeah, and, you know, it's starting to be, wow, um, mainstream now. Uh, Back then, raw honey was used along with some precious oils to keep skin soft, Think about this. Raw honey, Annie, has all the vitamins and minerals that are really wonderful for your skin. And if you get a little bee sting and if you put a little raw cider vinegar and honey on it, it might not even swell.
0: What about honey as a face mask?
16: Yeah, well, you know, I, as I, I said, it's really good for you. It's very moisturizing, honey, is, and you want to use raw honey, by the way. And here's what I do. I'll take an egg white and mix it with a little bit of raw honey, and then I'll use that as a face mask, of course, avoiding my eyes. I leave that on about 10 minutes, and then I rinse it off. Oh, my gosh, my face feels so much more firm and clean and of course, I don't go outside or talk to the neighbors during that time because <laughs> it doesn't look so good. But uh, face masks are very trendy in spas and uh, really expensive. But this is one that you can make yourself.
0: How do you get honey off your face? That takes a while, doesn't it?
16: Yeah, you just use a little bit of honey with the egg white. The egg white oh, a little burns bit your of honey. skin. Yeah, Got just it. a little bit. Um, And then the uh, raw honey softens it. So you've got the the firming and the softening going all at once.
0: You know, I'm surprised Roma hasn't made herself her own honey face mask that she, you know, gets all over her face. And then I spend hours trying to get it off. But uh, something that you recommend I make with her, Bible bubble bath. Oh, yes. So
16: quick and so easy. So fun. Two tablespoons of almond oil or olive oil, and you take about a cup of mild, unscented liquid soap, you know, like Ivory the Pure. Mm-hmm. Um, you mix those two together, and that's it. And sometimes um, I'll add some essential oil like lavender or peppermint, but that's it. And I'm also sharing a wonderful recipe for gardener's hand cream that just uses regular jarred um, Skin care cream, some almond oil, and a little bit of petroleum jelly. And that's even optional. So wonderful oils and and masks and bubble baths to keep our skins healthy.
0: Very cool. Read more about it. Go to abouteating.com. We've been talking to Rita Heidenfeld. Rita, thank you so much. I'll talk to you next week, Annie. We look forward to it. Thank you so much. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 21 past the hour.
3: This is Father Rob Jack with a Catechism Moment. An issue that always begins to pop up as we approach Holy Week concerns the death of Jesus Christ. We want to know who's ultimately responsible for Jesus' death. We want someone to blame. Often we are like the apostles who responded to Jesus at the Last Supper when he told them that someone would betray him by saying this, surely, Lord, it is not I. And throughout history, Christians have tried to blame the Romans, or the Jews, or Judas, but in the end they are all wrong. Paragraph 598 clearly states who is responsible for Christ's death. It says there, In her magisterial teaching of the faith, and in the witness of her saints, the Church has never forgotten that sinners were the authors and ministers of all the sufferings that the Divine Redeemer endured. But the irony of this is that the recognition of our culpability still does not keep us from sinning against God in both what we do and in what we fail to do. We claim to know Jesus Christ and to love him, and still we ignore the poor, still we are uncharitable to our neighbor, still we neglect our families, still we indulge in carnal, sinful pleasures. We still fail to pray or to attend Mass or obey the teachings of Christ and his church. This paragraph reminds us that, above all, we must be a humble and contrite people. Our humility recognizes our human weakness, and our contrition recognizes our immediate need of God's grace. Through the forgiveness that Jesus Christ won for us on the cross, may we learn compassion for sinners, sorrow for our sins, and a firm purpose of amendment to turn from all of our sins, whether they be petty or mortal, Lord Jesus Crucified. Have mercy on us.
0: Happy to welcome to the show, Dr. Joseph Stewart. He has a new book from Sophia Institute Press, Rethinking the Enlightenment, Faith in the Age of Reason. Dr. Stewart, welcome to the show.
12: Good morning, thank you for having me.
0: It's good to have you. And this is such an interesting thought. There were actually some good fruits that came from the Enlightenment (laughs) era. I wanna get into each of these more deeply, but you unpack three responses from Catholics to this age of reason that, that came about in these years leading up to and including the French Revolution. Conflict, engagement, and retreat. So first off, let's just state the obvious. So many Catholics were martyred by La Sainte Guillotine, um, but, but how did some in the church herself actually help bring about the prejudice that seems so popular in France in this time.
12: Sure, yeah. So one of the reasons that there was this, what I call the conflictual enlightenment, the side of the enlightenment that was attacking the church so much, especially in France, one of the reasons for that was because of, of a kind of a repressive political regime in France that was led by the king on downward and was very... Um, Catholic officially, there was sort of a Catholic political correctness going on that you have to be um, not just Catholic, but a certain kind of Catholic. And so there was sort of a persecution mentality going on that if you're a Jansenist or if you're a Jesuit or if you're a different kinds of a Catholic, you're you're not liked and you're not allowed. And this created a lot of resentment. And um, so there were people in France who were started to attack the church because the church was so so closely linked to the state that the, the abuse of power by the state, you know, implicated the Church too, and this created a lot of resentment in France.
0: And obviously a lot of martyrdoms, but there were those who would not abandon the faith, even in the face of that kind of persecution.
12: Yeah, that's right. All the wonderful story of the Carmelites of Compiègne, which is how I begin the book, because their story is so inspiring in the way that these 16 women, you know, were put on trial during the French Revolution, and then just gave this incredible heroic witness on the way to the guillotine when they were just singing, singing their hearts out, which silenced the streets of Paris. And the Vespers, and they were singing the Miserere, the Salve Regina, these sacred words that welled up out of their hearts, as from the very depths of Christian culture. And people just watch in silence as, one by one, their their heads were, were cut off by the guillotine, and there was one less voice singing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they offered themselves to the end of the reign of terror, and 10 late days later, it ended with the execution of the man who organized it, yeah. Robespierre.
0: It is such an incredible story, and so glad that you launched the book with those heroic women who who stood up for the faith in in the face of that persecution i want to talk about this idea of engagement that uh that you speak about in the book um what is a catholic Enlightener. Isn't that kind of an oxymoronic term?
12: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It could seem so. Yeah. No, well, in the last, you know, 20 years, historians have really uncovered uh, a forgotten side of the 18th century Enlightenment, and that is that many Christians and Jews as well uh, engaged the Enlightenment culture in some really fascinating and sophisticated ways. And so the Catholic Enlightenment is simply, was simply the attempt by Catholics, including you know bishops and laypeople and monks and priests and women, uh, and even a pope, the Enlightenment Pope Benedict XIV, to engage the Enlightenment culture of the physical sciences, of the importance of um, toleration between different kinds of people and respect for different kinds of people, the freedom of faith, uh, education of women, uh, making knowledge accessible to the public through museums. This is when the Vatican museums got going in the Catholic Enlightenment time period. And so, yeah, it was an attempt to engage the modern culture of the day, which I'm trying to take inspiration from in in helping us think of our own modern world in in more interesting ways than just one of sort of full embrace or hatred, that we have a discernment that we need to make today just like they made back then.
0: Absolutely, and I want to get to that um, toward the end of our conversation a little more deeply. But it is interesting to note i mean when we think of the enlightenment i think so many of us focus on on just france alone and yet there's yeah. i mean there's an entire world right and 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 history happened in other parts of the world at the same time
12: yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that is for some reason that the French have sort of conquered the debate on uh, where the Enlightenment was. But the French themselves actually praised the English for the ones that sort of originated the Enlightenment. So the the English Enlightenment was much more, not so much about the age of reason, it was more about like the importance of of, of virtue and a kind of politeness that you see in something like Jane, Jane Austen's novels, for example, that that was more of the English Enlightenment, and the American Enlightenment was even different. Yet, it was more interested in sort of the the politics of liberty and how is it that we can you know limit power, and that was really different than what was going on in France.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now, what was this retreat strategy, and how did that play into this Catholic response to the Enlightenment?
12: Yeah. So one of the the sides of the Enlightenment is what I call the the practical Enlightenment, which was the the side of the Enlightenment that's not necessarily in conflict with Christianity. It could be, but it wasn't necessarily. It's the the Enlightenment of the tradesmen and the inventors like like Benjamin Franklin, the engineers, the practical people who created the first steam engine in 1712 and the first iron bridge uh, toward the end of the century. And so it's the the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution that's really creating the modern world. And as we know so well today, uh, invention and technology, they can be used for good as as we're conversing now from long distance. For example, they can be used for good, they can also be used for bad. And so um, the response of the Christians, both both Protestants and Catholics, in this kind of new material environment was a, a, a certain caution, a kind of retreat. in the sense that's the third strategy of retreat. And not, I don't mean that in a military sense, but more um, in a spiritual sense, a movement inward, saying, okay, there's all this external change going on. I need to return in my soul, into, my, into prayer, in my vocation, building up the faith within my household within my parish, within the church and religious societies, and focus on that, and I don't need to worry so much about what's going on in the wider world as we do in the engagement strategy, for example. I don't need to worry so much about that. I need to retreat into myself and build up the faith from within.
0: How did the Benedictine order um, sort of serve as a model in this time?
12: Yeah. So the Benedictines were one of the great orders of the Age of of Enlightenment, partly because each of their monasteries is largely independent, so it's different than orders like the Jesuits or the Dominicans who are more centralized. So each independent monastery could make its own decision about how to relate to the Enlightenment, And, and many of them in Europe. Chose to really engage it, and they had the financial resources to do so. And so they built museums uh, to the sciences, and they were, there were monks who were teaching physics uh, at the University of Salzburg, and there were inventor monks and astronomers. And so they, they were really engaging the, the physical sciences in ways that other orders weren't. Um, now, some of them perhaps went a little too far, and so we can see in the book kind of the dangers of the engagement strategy, too. Um, that you can you can engage too much if you lose track of the sense of conflict that you also need to have with with things that are at odds with the faith and also the sense of wisdom that we get from retreat so sometimes there could be a weakness there
0: are there any characters that you talk about in the book maybe pick out one or two that you think should be better known in the church today.
12: Yeah, absolutely, two of them. One, Maria and Yessi. She was a great woman of Milan and of the Catholic Enlightenment, very pious, um, a holy woman who was very involved in her community, helping take care of the poor, but she was also incredibly brilliant. Um, she gave a Latin oration at age nine on the importance of education for women. Now, this happened decades before any other, like, Enlightenment woman was—like Mary Wollstonecraft, for example—decades before they were making these arguments. And she uh, was— in Milan with her family and get up in, a, in the salon kind of conversation and be able to defend arguments in philosophy and in the sciences in just this brilliant way that people from all over Europe came to hear her speak. So I think she's an amazing woman who the, the Catholic Enlightenment helped make her, her life an achievement possible because it gave her access to, to education, which wasn't as accessible to women in, in non-Catholic parts of Europe, for sure. Uh, the other figure is definitely Pope Benedict XIV, who I mentioned, n- known as the, the Enlightenment Pope, uh-huh. um, 1740 to 1758. Uh, he was a great admirer of uh, Maria and Yesi, who I just mentioned. He helped forward her career, in fact. And uh, anyway, he was great because he was not only a lover of St. Thomas Aquinas, he was also a lover of the new empirical methods coming up, rising up in the sciences. And so he built up uh, public museums. As I mentioned, he laid the groundwork for the Vatican Museums. Um, also, the Academy of Sciences in Bologna, and um, and he re- he reformed the process of canonization uh, according to the the Enlightenment reasoning of sort of caution and criticism about claims to miracles, that we need to use medical science, we need to examine, okay, was it a natural causality in this miracle claim, or is this actually a miracle? And those canonization procedures, like the devil's advocate, that are trying to find reasons that, you know, a person isn't a saint, that kind of critical spirit of the Enlightenment, he brought into the very heart of our own faith wow. in, uh, in yeah. thinking about saints in some fascinating ways.
0: Wow, what a legacy. We're talking to Dr. Joseph Stewart about his book, Rethinking the Enlightenment. And and Dr. Stewart, as we conclude our conversation today, why does any of this matter? What lessons can we take away from faith in the age of reason, and how can we Mm -hmm. use that today?
12: Yeah, no, thank you for that. I think that as we're looking at the past and we see how other Christians in another age interacted with their own environment. It just reminds us today to, to take a more discerning approach, a, a kind of a spiritual nimbleness, if you, if, you, if you will, in different contexts. Sometimes we have to conflict and we have you know, lawyers today and politicians and doctors who are out there on the front lines of the cultural battles over human dignity and religious freedom and you know, kind of checking government overreach and all these kinds of things. That's this conflict strategy, and that's what Christians did so well in the age of reason, and that's what we need to do again. But we can't fall into a kind of conflictual mentality where everything's a battle, because then we start fighting each other. We turn inward, we, we, we sacrifice our unity uh, as, as Catholics and as Christians, so we have to be able to engage each other and the wider world. It's so important for those outside influences to really engage them on their own terms. But to do either one well, we have to have wisdom, and we find that in this retreat. Uh, method or strategy. Sometimes we need to just ignore what's going on and, and just give it to God and, and turn inward in that retreat movement that can then ex- sort of explode outward in a, in a new kind of evangelical creativity. Those three responses of conflict, engagement, and retreat were made by Christians in the Age of Enlightenment, and I think we need to do it again.
0: We're talking to uh, Dr. Joseph Stewart. His book is called Rethinking the Enlightenment, Faith in the Age of Reason. Dr. Stewart, I'm going to have to have you back. I have so many more things I want to talk about, but we've run out of time today. Um, But we have the book linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Some fascinating ideas in here. So much fun. uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 35 past the hour.
9: This past year has been a crazy roller coaster ride, but you have the power to get your business back on track by underwriting the Sunrise Morning Show. Weekday mornings, your message will reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners across the U.S. and around the globe who want to know more about and support Catholic businesses and organizations. To get national exposure for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on the Sunrise Morning Show, email me, Leah at SacredHeartRadio.com. That's Leah at SacredHeartRadio.com.
10: I'm Father Timothy Shear, and these are Biblical Impressions. Family values is a phrase we are all very familiar with. Of course, the early church had family values, too. We can see this from Acts of the Apostles, where we actually meet several generations of a family that Luke held in high esteem. Timothy worked by Paul's side for a long time, joining the apostle during the second missionary journey to Asia Minor. Timothy's family, at least the women in his family, were also Christian and apparently well-known in the early church. Paul preserves their names for us. Timothy's mother was Eunice, and his grandmother was Lois. We get no further description of Eunice and Lois but we do get to see them through their son and grandson. Timothy's dedication to the church, his unrelenting work for the truth, his preaching of the gospel, and his love of the Lord. So although we cannot see Eunice and Lois, physically, we can see them faith-wise through their son. What a beautiful example of family values. For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Timothy Shear.
5: We're joined now by Ramona Trevino, and she, along with Roxanne Salonen, have written a new book called Redeemed by Grace, A Catholic Woman's Journey to Planned Parenthood, and back. It's, by, it's through Ignatius Press. And Ramona, thanks uh, for being with us on the Sunrise Morning Show. Oh, thanks for having me. So talk about your own life and some of the struggles that you went through as a very young woman that caused you to want to help other young women through the avenue of Planned Parenthood.
17: Uh, Yeah. I mean, I I had a difficult childhood. It wasn't the perfect ideal uh, way of growing up. I had an alcoholic father, and then um, at 16 I became pregnant and entered into a very difficult and abusive um, marriage with my first husband. Ultimately, led in divorce and annulment. Um, and then, you know, a few years later, I was married in through the Catholic Church with my husband, and we entered fully into the church. And, uh, somehow, a couple years after that, I entered into Planned Parenthood. So, um, it's, it's just been interesting, you know, how I ended up there. I don't, I really can't say for sure, but, you know, we get lost sometimes, and, and that's kind of what happened to me.
5: Was part of your motivation for joining up with Planned Parenthood to try and help girls who had been in your similar situation facing unplanned pregnancies so that they could avoid them or uh, not have to deal with the consequences of them?
17: I don't know if it would be considered like a motivation um, because I didn't really know who Planned Parenthood was at the time, Um, but it was appealing to me um, when my friend... Who kind of recruited me into Planned Parenthood, um, you know it's appealing to me to know that that was part of it you know is, is helping young women and helping people who were underinsured and um you know the, the whole nonprofit aspect and um you know just kind of knowing that or or at the time thinking that, oh well, contracepting and you know getting involved in the family planning part um would help prevent abortions and prevent unplanned pregnancies. So, um, you know, it it was something that that was appealing to me. Um, You know, I I wouldn't really necessarily call it motivation because I didn't really know a whole lot about Planned Parenthood.
5: Well, at what point did you look around at what was going on and think to yourself, something here is not ideal? Something here is not helping people in the way that they really need to be helped?
17: Yeah, you know, that came several times. You know, I think it was something... For me, that was kind of difficult because, as a mother of teenage of a teenage daughter and a teenage and my teenage stepdaughter, I struggled a lot with seeing a lot of the youth that came in and out of those doors, and just feeling like, you know, this isn't the answer for them. And if I was their mom, this is not how I would solve this issue. Um, and so it really it really tugged at my heart pretty pretty much on a daily basis that I was there. But I couldn't quite figure out, you know, really pinpoint what it was that was bothering me. Um, It was just, it just wasn't clicking, I guess. It wasn't making any sense to me.
5: As honestly and bluntly as you can put it, what did you think of pro-lifers who prayed or demonstrated outside of Planned Parenthood?
17: Outside of my particular Planned Parenthood, because we didn't do abortions, I thought that they needed to get a life. <laughs> I thought, you know, they're wasting their time. Why are they here? We don't do abortions. Um, don't they have better things to do? Um, you know, just those type of feelings.
5: So at what point then did you, I mean, did you ever have conversations with them, or did you just look out your window and said, oh, there go those idiots with their rosaries again?
17: <laughs> uh, n- no, actually, um, there were a couple of times that we had conversations Um as, as the years, I was there three years, so I would say probably in the, but by the end of the first year to the second year, you know, I kind of would, you know, go out there. I guess at that point, you know, I'm pretty sure my conscience was messing with me. And, um, you know, there were a couple of times that I went out and we talked and we had, you know, decent conversations and they had their opinion and I had my opinion. And, um, you know, that was kind of it, but it was really, really good that we did that and we had that exchange because, They planted seeds, whether they realized it or not, whether I wanted to accept it or not.
5: So at some point along the way, you probably heard stories of folks like Bernard Nathanson, or depending on when all this went down, you know, folks like Abby Johnson or other workers along the way who had been involved in the promotion of abortion, perhaps even Jane Roe herself, Norma McCorvey. What were your thoughts about hearing people who had been so deeply involved in the abortion industry Turning their back on this and becoming pro-life. I mean, what did you? What were your thoughts about that?
17: Mm-hmm. Well, to be honest with you, I had never heard of of anyone other than until I began listening to Catholic radio and, and and heard of Abby Johnson. So you know, it was it was just one of those things where you know I'm this small town country girl grew grew up in this little bitty town, you know, population six hundred, and abortion wasn't even on my radar, Planned Parenthood wasn't on my radar, um, I didn't know a whole lot about the industry or even the pro-life, pro-choice, you know, movement and you know, all of that, and so I was just in Planned Parenthood really not, you know, just kind of minding my own business. Um, and so when I first started to have that conversion and, and, and first listened to Catholic radio and then then later, just a, you know, like a month later, heard of Abby Johnson. It really piqued my interest. Like it was really interesting to me to hear her on the radio and hear about her book Unplanned, um, and and it made me stop and really think. You know, it stopped me in my tracks.
5: Do you think there are a lot of people who work at Planned Parenthood uh, who are like you and uh, didn't perhaps participate in the abortion side? of it and think that that really wasn't much of what Planned Parenthood did, that really what they just did is help people not get pregnant?
17: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I believe that. Um, I think a lot of these smaller um, outlining clinics, um, you know, that are kind of set in these smaller rural cities, I think a lot of people go in not knowing because we don't live our lives out, you know, for the cause of life. Like we go about our, our lives, you know, just living day to day with our own issues, and we don't pay attention to these type of issues. We don't pay attention to the abortion issue, um, and we don't have a clue. You know, and then we buy into that whole lie of who Planned Parenthood is and who this organization is and what they represent. So, you know, we don't. I don't think very many people. Honestly, I think there are several other people like myself who are just kind of naive about the whole issue.
5: That being said, for those of us who are participating in Forty Days for Life campaign, how do you think that should inform the way that we pray for the people who are involved at Planned Parenthood? Because so often we think it's the uh, you know Martin Haskells and Leroy Carharts of this world that are populating all of Planned Parenthood. When in a lot of cases, it's people like you who are not involved in surgical abortions, probably not even involved in chemical abortions.
17: Right, right. Oh, yeah, I think it does have a huge impact on the way we pray, um, because there are good-hearted, good-willed people who work there who, you know, they get in there, they, they think they're just doing a job, um, you know, like any other medical field and working for a clinic, and really not understanding, you know, what the connection is between these non-abortion facilities facilities and the abortion clinics, right? And so I think, you know, that's that does impact greatly how we should pray for people for that for the Holy Spirit to open their hearts and for for wisdom and for, you know, that opportunity to plant those seeds of knowledge. Um, but definitely for them to become more knowledgeable of what's going on and more aware. And I think that's what's really wonderful about having that prayer presence, because then people inside become aware that something's wrong. <laughs> you know, there's, why are there people out there? Why are there people on the sidewalk? And they have to think about those things.
12: All right. Have
5: a blessed day, and uh, we'll pray for you and pray for all who have been wounded by the abortion industry, whether as their consumers or whether as those who have been behind the counter. Thanks so much, Ramona. Have a blessed day. You too. Thank you. I'm Matt Swaim, and you're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Back after this.
4: The first annual Dominican Rosary Pilgrimage, sponsored by the Dominican Friars Foundation, will take place on Saturday, September 30th at the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. This all day event will feature conferences by Father Gregory Pine, Resuscitation of the Rosary, a Fervorino by Father Lawrence Liu, and Mass with Father James Brent as homilist. Join us for this day of prayer to Our Lady. For more information, visit rosarypilgrimage.org. That's rosarypilgrimage.org. Central Fabricators is proud to support the Sunrise Morning Show, where you'll get news from the Catholic perspective, while keeping you up to date on what's happening in the Vatican as well. It's also a great way to keep in touch with the Catholic faith throughout the week. Central Fabricators, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, is a family-owned business for over 75 years, manufacturing and repairing corrosion-resistant storage tanks, reactors, and pressure vessels. On the web at centralfabricators.com. That's centralfabricators.com.
0: Hi, I'm Jeanette Williams, inviting you to Birmingham for the free EWTN
16: Family Celebration. It's Saturday, August 26th. Enjoy talks from your favorite EWTN radio and TV hosts, including me. You can shop at EWTN's religious catalog, attend Holy Mass, and be part of a televised show. There's even a Eucharistic procession through the streets of Birmingham. Go to EWTN.com slash family celebration to find out more and to register. I look forward to seeing you there.
0: Back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Executive Editor and Washington Bureau Chief of EWTN News. Good morning, Doc.
15: Good morning. Great to be with you.
0: It is great to have you, especially when we get the opportunity to talk about one of your faves, St. Stephen of Hungary. Born into a pagan family, but then died in a family that would include quite a few saints. So what happened?
15: Well, what happened is uh, what uh, often happened, and that is the the power of the Christian faith in transforming not just families, not just royal families, but entire nations, and in that sense, too, uh, the whole of Europe and then the whole of the world. In the case of uh, Stephen, he was the son of uh, one of the Grand Dukes, uh, the powerful duke of the Hungarians by the name of Geza, and his wife, uh, Serold, uh, who was probably Transylvanian. Both of them had been pagan. Both of them were converted and then baptized by a great bishop and saint, Adalbert of Prague. And it was the same saint who then uh, baptized their son, who had the name of Vike. Uh, 985, giving him the name of Stephen, and that established, I think, right there, the key to all of the Hungarian history that followed.
0: Yeah, talk about his mission to make Hungary a Christian nation.
15: Well, he grew up... uh, surrounded uh, by pagans, uh, by those among the Magyars, the Hungarians, who were reluctant to embrace the Christian faith, but he saw the importance of the Christian faith in two ways. One, building culture, but then also the genuine good that it could bring to transform a culture, especially what had been a very violent and pagan one. And as a result of that, when he succeeded his father, first as this Grand Duke of the Hungarians, and then as actual king, he had to overcome many pagan claimants uh, and pagan resistors. And what he did in that fighting was at the same time then to establish not just laws favoring Christianity over the pagan culture that had been there, but it's really in order to transform Hungarian culture into an authentic Christian one. And what that meant was immense activity in caring for the poor and the sick, building churches, of creating roads that could take pilgrims uh, as a faster way to the Holy Land. Uh, and as a result of that, pilgrims by the thousands traveled through Hungary. So in every possible way, he demonstrated to the Hungarians, but also to the surrounding tribes, the importance of Christianity, but also how their lives could be changed. And he actually, truly believed it.
0: And then, perhaps even more importantly, how did he foster the faith in his own family?
15: Well, he did that um, in a couple of ways. First, by actually living the faith, um, he was famous for his charity. In fact, uh, it is said that uh, his beautifully preserved right hand, the Holy Dexter, as it's called, uh, was preserved for two reasons. One, uh, in the the coin, the, the gold that he handed out with that hand everywhere he went. The other was that on his deathbed, after the tragic death of his son, Emmerich, he reportedly, according to legend, lifted his crown, and held it up uh, to the Blessed Mother, uh, telling her that she is now the guardian of Hungary, the, the real queen of Hungary. So there's examples like that that not only made them role models for the Hungarian people, but role models within their own family. It's why his son Emmerich, whom he had so hoped would succeed him, but who died uh, in 1031 in a hunting accident. Uh, He himself was canonized, uh, along with Stephen of Hungary. That's a rare feat, indeed, that you'd have a father and a son both canonized, but uh, the the Chronicles are very clear uh, that Emmerich deserved that canonization, as did his father,
0: Now, we cannot let you go, Dr. Bunsen, without telling us the story, this wonderful story that you have about your own family's devotion to St. Stephen, King of Hungary.
15: Well, my late brother uh, was uh, given the the name Stephen. He was Stephen Mark, uh, and he was baptized on the Feast of St. Stephen. And uh, for those who are not familiar with it, uh, my brother was diagnosed with Huntington's disease, uh, which is uh, an incurable, untreatable neurological brain disease, uh, the same disease that actually uh, took our father. And it was in early 19, the early 1970s, around 1973, that uh, Cardinal Manzenti, who had been freed at last uh, from the years of imprisonment, was able to travel the world to warn everyone about the dangers of atheism, of communism. And he made a stop in Hawaii, where I grew up. And he specifically asked at an event uh, to speak to my brother. Uh, I'm a witness. I was there when it happened. And he asked to talk to my brother, asked his name, and he was told Stephen. He said, which Stephen? And my mother said, Stephen, King of Hungary. And he said, yes, Uh, I said, he said to us that I have been looking forward to meeting you. He said, because I knew when I came to Hawaii, I was supposed to meet you. And he said that the years to come will bring many hardships and a great cross. And In those times of darkness, in those times when you were asked to carry the cross, remember that a Prince of the Church came across the world to tell you this, that Christ will always be there with you and for you. And we had no idea at the time, because my brother was uh, about 12, uh, what was actually unfolding. And sure enough, in the next years, uh, as the disease made its way through his life, we kept always looking back to that extraordinary moment with an extraordinary cardinal and delivering an even more extraordinary message.
0: What a consolation that must have been for for your mother particularly, but you as well, as as you watched your brother deteriorate.
15: It was. Uh, and I think that's, uh, I'm grateful that you wanted to talk about this because I think that's a very important lesson I did. At the end, it is for all of us to accept the crosses that that God gives us, to understand the importance of redemptive suffering. And at a time in the world when we're told that the suffering needs to be avoided, that those who suffer uh, need to be set aside... Uh, that uh, let hasten their passing so that no one is inconvenienced. There is so much to be learned by what John Paul II always referred to as the School of the Cross, and his great writing, especially as, uh, of Govindji Dolores. And I think that was something that Cardinal Nozenti, who himself had suffered for decades, uh, first under the Nazis and then under the Communists, and then looking at uh, the shattering impact of modernity, That uh, he too had learned from that school of the cross and had so much wisdom to impart. And that consolation was always there. And St. Stephen of Hungary and Cardinal Manzendi, whose cause is open, uh, are very important figures uh, to my family. But I think there are other people around the world who have benefited and can benefit uh, from the lessons that he
0: teaches. Amen. We've been talking to Dr. Matthew Bunson from EWTN News. Dr. Bunsen, thank you so much for your time this morning.
15: Great to be with you. God bless.
0: You too, Dr. Bunson. Thank you. St. Stephen of Hungary, pray for us. Venerable Cardinal Joseph Menzenti, pray for us. That'll do it for this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. For Matt Swain
8: and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace.